quick disclaimer, there's some dismemberment on the second story today. Please follow the link in the show notes for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories from Hans Christian Andersen about how the greatest strength is extreme sensitivity and weakness and how the only reasonable response to wanting anything or thinking well of yourself is, of course, torture and dismemberment. The creature this time is a witch who, yeah, steals the life out of people, but also hates garlic bread? This is Myths and Legends, episode 293, The Little Things. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, there are two fairy tales from Danish writer and child nightmare inducer Hans Christian Andersen, author of the brutal original story of The Little Mermaid and so many other tales. Today, there are stories of little things leading to big problems. The first is probably a story you're familiar with. We'll jump in with a mother and son sitting down for an interview. The princess sat across from the prince. Yeah, so real nice of the prince and his mom to have her here for dinner. The prince smiled, of course. They're both super excited for her to join the team. Um, so we got your princess resume. Fantastic, some great references. You know four languages. You can follow courtly politics and machinations. You can embroider and stuff. So good, fantastic. The princess smiled, well, thank you. She was raised from a young age to be used as a tool for her father to forge alliances. She just had to say, she was so happy to be speaking with the prince here, an attractive young man instead of some, I don't know, bluebeard. She heard horror stories from her friends, like actual horror stories. There were severed body parts. The prince was blushing, not at the body parts portion of the princess's response, but that she thought he was attractive. Stay on task. The queen, the mother, said to her son. The young man cleared his throat. Yes, he was going to be real. The resume, the way she presented herself, he thought she would be an excellent addition to their kingdom. When could she start being his wife? The princess beamed. Wow. Just then, a servant walked in the room with dessert. She looked to the man. Oh, thank you. She turned back to the prince. How about today? This was the Middle Ages. Things move quickly. But the prince's visage had curdled. What was that? The princess said she accepted his proposal? The prince said no. Before that, did you address the waitstaff? The princess said she, yes? She was thanking the person that brought her something. Was that something they didn't do? Fraud! The prince screamed. What? The princess asked. The prince was in tears in his mother's arms. Another one. Why? Why, when he opened up his heart, did they feel the need to stab at it? What did I do? Haven't you done enough? The queen said. She saw right through this. The princess was too perfect, too good on paper. She was a fraud. Princess said, fraud? She, she came here in a giant carriage. Paper mache, the queen spat back. The princess said she had attendants. She was a real princess, like ask 
anyone who came with her. You mean your little con artist crew that was going to get you installed as the princess and then systematically poison me, my husband, my son, leaving you, yourself, the only true heir? The queen said. The likely story. Likely? How was that likely? The queen stroked the hair of her sobbing princeling. There you go. There you go. Mommy's got you. The mean fake princess can't hurt you anymore. The princess stood. She wouldn't dine to be insulted like this. She was leaving. Yes, you are leaving, the queen said. No one tries to commit fraud in this kingdom. She was leaving and going straight to the headsman. The princess said, what? The queen nodded, and the guards closed in on the princess in the center of the room. As the woman screamed, the queen held her son. Someday, someday he would meet a true princess, instead of these frauds that kept hungering after his power. Oh, he didn't go for the new one? The old king said an hour or so later, when he returned from his hunting and other king stuff. She was a fraud, a fake princess who came hungering after our power, the queen said. The old king said, okay. What? The queen spat. The old king said that uh, that made for kind of a lot of frauds now, didn't the queen think? The queen said that when there were a lot of frauds, that made for a lot of frauds. Yes, she didn't understand what the old king was trying to say here. The old king, oh, how to put this delicately, there weren't that many fraudulent princesses. He worried that she was using the no true Scotsman fallacy because she didn't want the prince to get married. No princess lowers herself to speaking with the servants. The queen crossed her arms. But the princess today did. I know her dad. I've known her since she was a toddler. Now I have to explain to another king why their daughter spent the night in our dungeon. Well, no true princess will lower herself to speaking with the servants. The queen wasn't budging. The king pointed that. That is the fallacy. The no true Scotsman fallacy. An appeal to purity where you, ex- where you exclude the legitimate counterexample on the fly. The queen said she didn't understand what the Scots had to do with their discussion. This was Denmark, and her son would only marry a true princess, or else he would have to stay at home with her forever. Yeah, this this is healthy, the king said, and they both heard a knock at the door. One of the servants opened the door and then rushed in. It was a princess, or so she said. Did her majesty want to wake the headsman? Yes, please, the queen said. The king held up his hand. No, give her a chance. If she says she's a princess, maybe she's actually a princess. Let's not be so eager to cut off her head. When she entered the room, the king kind of reconsidered whether he wanted to choose this particular hill to die on. The woman had been wandering for days, obviously, and the rain had picked up just as she approached the city. So she was soaked. She had no money. She had been cast out of her kingdom for some fairy tale reason or another, like... Her mom wanted to murder her, or her dad made a promise to his late wife to marry someone who looked just like her, so he tried to marry his daughter, or a witch had taken her place. Whatever the reason, the queen didn't care. This woman wasn't a true princess, so she wasn't going to marry the prince. Okay, the alleged princess said. She just wanted a warm place to sleep. She didn't want to marry the prince. The queen mother wasn't buying it. 
Then, she got a devious idea. Yes, absolutely. She would show the princess to her room. Oh, but first, the girl should clean up. She would have the servants draw a bath. The queen would go get the young woman's room ready herself. A pea. The queen grinned. Yes, a pea. But why? The king said that the queen really didn't answer the question, just held the pea up. The queen said that a true princess would feel any discomfort, no matter how small, even if it was simply a pea underneath a mattress. That doesn't sound real, the king said. Oh, it's real. Seneca the Younger, you know, the Stoic, told the story of a Sybarite man, you know, a man from Sybaris, a city that used to exist in southern Italy. The king said, uh, yes, he was definitely familiar with that story, but just so he could be sure his wife knew, could she tell it to him? Apparently, there lived a prince in that city who slept on a bed of roses. The king nodded. Mm, very nice. Soft, cushioned, opulent to the point of excess. I mean, not only do you have to grow the roses, but pluck them each night? Pretty nice. Not for this prince, the queen said. The next day, as the prince was walking through the city, or limping, more likely, he saw a man working. Prince could hardly stand the sight not only because seeing work made him think of work, which upset his delicate princely disposition, but because blisters. Blisters, the king asked, as the queen placed the pea. Yeah, as he demanded the farmer not work in his sight, he showed why he was so agitated. He lifted up his shirt, and his back was covered in blisters. One of the rose petals had folded over onto itself. That was so hard that the prince's back was covered in sores. The king said, okay, that, once again, that does not sound real. The queen dragged a mattress over top the pea. She leapt on top of it. Hmm, no dice. She could still feel the pea. No, you can't. No one can. You're only saying that because you know it's there. The king laughed. We need more mattresses. The queen snapped her fingers, ignoring the king. Oh my gosh, you're literally stacking the deck against this girl. Just say you don't want our son to marry. The queen ignored him again. They needed more. 18, no, 20. 20 mattresses should do. The princess looked at the stack of mattresses. Uh, what? The queen said that this was how they treated honored guests. All princesses, that is. If you stack two ladders on top of each other, you should be able to climb the rest of the way. Try not to sway too much, though. That thing is narrow and tall. It will come down. The princess managed to climb up as high as she could. And when she made it to the top, she spread out to keep her center of gravity as low as possible. You good? You comfy? The queen called out. The princess, who was about 18 inches from the ceiling, said, Uh, yeah? The queen grimaced. That's what she thought. The next morning at breakfast, the prince, the queen, and the king sat waiting. The princess had managed to climb down and gotten ready. And then they all saw her limp to the table. 
How did you sleep last night, dear? Was it a great night of sleep or the greatest night of sleep? The queen nodded to the guards. Be ready. Her son would scream fraud. The queen would say, haven't you done enough? And they would drag the princess off for being a con artist, just like rehearsal. The princess said, honestly, she slept pretty horribly. The king and prince pricked up their ears. What? The princess said not to be ungrateful, but there was something under the mattresses, some hard substance. She could just not get comfortable. In fact, her back was bruised, black and blue, as the story says, because she laid on such a hard thing all night. She undid her dress at the shoulders and turned around to show them the bruises. It was dreadful. Queen's jaw dropped. Her, the, the test. She's a princess, a true princess. The prince stood, holding his chest. The princess said, yeah, that's what she said the night before. Wait, did they not believe her? The guards stepped forward. They were so used to dragging princesses off to their doom that they were on autopilot now. They stopped when the prince embraced the princess. Mother, she's a real princess. We finally found one, mother. I can marry her. Mother said, yep, that's what she had been hoping for. The princess said they just met. Like, maybe, but she was really just stopping by for the night. She had her own stuff going on. It's not a great time. Also, once again, they just met. My son is getting married, the king cried out. The princess said, oh, again, they didn't even ask her. My son is getting married, the king said again, clasping the prince and princess on the shoulders. The princess said, oh, yeah, they were in the Middle Ages, that's, that's right. And so they were married. They lived happily ever after, maybe. The story doesn't really care to say and did not say anything about the wandering princess actually wanting to marry the prince, just that the prince married her. It does wrap up pretty focused on the pea, though. The pea that revealed the princess's royalty was placed in a cabinet of curiosities and put in a museum, where it can still be seen to this day, unless, of course, someone has stolen it. The End I've always seen this story about making the distinction between royalty and the rest of us. Like, there's something mystical about a true royal that sets them apart from us on a level we can't ever hope to attain or understand. I like this story because it's kind of subversive. It shows that, if that's true, if there really is something that sets the royal blood apart from our own, it's weakness. They've pampered themselves to the point that they can no longer function in society as a normal human being. If you can't fall asleep on top of 20 mattresses because there's a pea or a folded rose petal or a hair, as in some stories, I don't care who you are. That is not a strength. I drew out the mother and son's obsession with purity in a funny way, but really, it almost ended their line and does not bode well for the future. Next up, it's a story about a girl getting something she always wanted, a pair of shoes, and how that, of course, led to a horror story. But that will be right after this. Fifteen-year-old Karen danced. She danced, though the bushes cut her. 
She danced even though she tumbled down the rocks. She danced though her whole body ached and burned and begged her to stop. She danced because of the red shoes. She cursed them. She cursed the day she ever saw those red shoes. Tricked the old woman into buying them for her. She would never be free. Now, then she recognized a cabin up ahead. She was still a quarter mile away, but she started screaming, screaming for the man she knew lived within. Only he could end this pain. He was the queen's headsman. She screamed for him to come out, come out and help her. The headsman emerged to see the girl dancing up the road in a torn dress, caked in days of sweat and dirt, skin torn and bloodied. He knew what she wanted. He went to grab his axe. Seven years earlier, Karen's mother was dead. The little girl followed the poor straw coffin, weeping. The village had come out. Her mother had been sick a long time. They would come together to help Karen, to raise her as best they could. Here, give me the little girl. I will adopt her. The village heard from a passing carriage. They looked at each other. That was a freebie. I mean, yes, they definitely wanted to help out little Karen as much as they could, but they couldn't help her out that much. They were struggling just as much as her mother had been. And what better way to help her than let her be adopted by a rich woman? Since someone shouting out a passing car is, I guess, all you need to properly vet a person hoping to adopt a child, Karen left with the rich older woman after her mother's funeral. Karen felt the soft velvet of the carriage seat. Karen, whose birth mother had been so impoverished that Karen had been forced to run around without shoes in the summer and wear dangerous, large wooden shoes in the winter. The only explanation she had for this amazing turn of events were the red shoes that she was wearing. They were shoes that the local shoemaker had made out of some leftover cloth. They were a little big and baggy in the wrong areas, but Karen loved them. They had been a wonderful comfort on the day of her mother's funeral, and they had obviously been the reason this rich woman was adopting her and burn them, burn the shoes. Karen, who loved the shoes, but was reluctant to talk back to the woman who had just changed her life, asked, why? The woman said first, no, the girl did not do that. Question her decisions, that was. Second, because they were horrible. She removed the shoes from the girl's feet, revealing blisters and calluses. The old woman shook her head. Poor, poor girl. Karen was taken into the house and taught to read and sew. She learned to clean herself and dress to the standards that the older woman thought appropriate. Thou art more than nice. Thou art beautiful. The older woman's servants looked in the door. Hi, uh, two things. First, they should get going. The princess and the queen were visiting the city, and the old woman wants to get going, so it was time to go. Uh, second, was that you telling yourself that it was better to be beautiful than nice? Karen smiled. It was the mere speaking to her. The servant said, okay, that in like a literal way, or... Was that how she was rating her reflection in the mirror? You know what? Does not matter. They really needed to get going if they were going to see the princess. The young princess was just standing out above the crowd just to be 
stared at. That was what she was doing for the morning. That was what the people of the city were also doing for the morning. It was a slow morning. But Karen was enraptured by what she saw. Not the princess, not her white dress or perfect skin, but her red shoes. They were so much nicer than the red shoes Karen had the day she was adopted by the old woman. The day they were burned. Red leather Moroccan shoes. Nothing in this world compared to the red shoes she had to have them. The years had passed and Karen turned 13. And it was decided that she should be confirmed. And she led her mother to the shoemaker's house in the city. But led, because in the years since Karen's adoption, the mother's eyesight had grown dim. The mother had declared that Karen should get some new clothes and new shoes for her confirmation. And as the shoemaker measured her foot, Karen's eyes wandered to the shoes. The red shoes and the large glass case. Oh, those. Yeah, the princess came through. Everyone wanted Morocco shoes just like hers. They were a fad, though. And this count didn't even come pick them up for his daughter. They'd been sitting around for months. The shoemaker looked at Karen's foot. You know, actually, they were her size. He'd let them go at cost. He just wanted to be rid of them. He took the shoes out, and the old lady, feeling them, said they were patent leather. At cost, too? Yes. They'll take them. Karen looked to the shoes, then looked to her smiling mother. The woman couldn't see that they were red, or else she never would have let Karen have them. Still, Karen would take what she could get. She embraced her mother. Red shoes, the old woman said Sunday afternoon. Karen said, uh, what was the question? You wore red shoes to church. The woman was livid. She, of course, didn't see when Karen walked into church wearing red shoes, feeling like all eyes were on her. Turned out she was right. And even though she was thinking about the red shoes when they were going all for all that boring praying and baptism stuff, everyone else was thinking, how dare she? How dare she wear red shoes to church? They all told Karen's mother the moment church let out. She let her girl go to church in red shoes? Never again, Karen's mother barked. Black shoes, black shoes only at church. She demanded the red shoes and they were burned. Well, a pair of shoes were burned. Karen had already lost one pair of shoes to her mother's anti-red shoe prejudice. She wasn't losing ones that were exactly like those of the princess. Next Sunday, she looked at the red shoes and the black shoes and picked the red ones. As she and her mother walked the path through the corn to church, dust kicking up, they heard someone waiting by the door. A soldier with crutches sitting by the church. He had a long red and white beard. Oh, what beautiful dancing shoes, he cried out. Sit firm when you dance, he said, and then started to laugh. The mother gave the soldier alms, and she and Karen continued walking quicker toward the church. In the church, Karen was so consumed thinking about her red shoes that she forgot some of the words to the prayers, forgot to sing some psalms. She was having an off week, psalm-wise. From the ankle down, though, firing on all cylinders, when the pair left the church, 
The other churchgoers were about to whisper in the old woman's ear, but a shout went up. Oh, look what beautiful dancing shoes, the soldier by the door cried out. Karen smirked. They were beautiful. Then her feet began to move. That was weird. She started dancing. It's like they were moving all on their own. The old woman had the carriage come pick them up, but Karen danced right past it. The old woman yelled out that Karen needed to come back, but Karen said she couldn't. She would meet her mother at home. She was going to dance all the way. She hoped she wasn't sure exactly where she was going. Her mother, though, was having none of that untoward dancing nonsense. She ordered the valet to chase her daughter down, and the valet jumped down, grabbed Karen, and shut her in the carriage. She apologized for stomping on her mother's feet the whole way home, and eventually she just took the shoes off. Probably should have done that from the start. She walked in the house, barefoot, and put them in her closet. If you think wearing red shoes to church is bad, well, it's, it's not, but some actual bad stuff is coming up. That will, once again, be right after this. It was the night of the great ball. A cough echoed from the other room. The old woman was sick. Dying, the doctors said. Her mother. Her mother was dying. Again. She held her mother's hand. The woman had shared her final years with Karen. She had taken the girl in as a daughter. And then, Karen slid her hand away. The old woman struggled to open her eyes, but she couldn't speak. Her eyes asked the question. Karen smiled, telling her mother to go to sleep. She would be right back. Maybe Karen was heartless. I don't think so, though. Yes, it is cruel to, while your mother is on her deathbed, abandon her to go to a dance. Actually, saying that out loud sounds pretty horrible. I like to think, though, that our protagonist was... Not the worst. Up until this point, her rebellions were just that. Rebellions. She tricked her mother with the red shoes, and she wore the red shoes to church. Oh no, I know I did more rebellious things when I was a teen. Sorry, Mom and Dad. I like to think that she loved the woman, but that being there was too much to bear. She had lost one mother at a very young age, and I would imagine losing a parent at any age is traumatic, but being eight years old and unable to care for yourself, it had to be cataclysmic for the young girl. Now that pain was there again. The old woman who adopted her was on her deathbed and everything was coming back. That pain, that panic, she had to get out of there. And the only thing she could think of that would take her out of that place was the dance. The dance with the red shoes, the red shoes that had solved everything the last time she lost a mother. She slipped on the red shoes and took the long way out of the house so she didn't pass her mother's room. Karen entered the dance hall and just let it all go. She surrendered and just began dancing. She gave herself to the red shoes and the red shoes took her. They took her up the floor 
the gazes of men and women followed her in either wordless adoration or envy. The red shoes took her up the ballroom and down it, left and right into the arms of other dancers, out the door, down the steps and down toward the dark forest. Wait, what? Karen regained herself when the first branch scratched her, tearing at her stockings and flesh. She screamed and reached down, trying to unhook the shoes. But even though she managed, they still clung to her feet. The shoes carried Karen off, farther and farther into the darkness. It was nearly midnight when she heard a laughter up ahead. Her dress was torn, her stockings ravaged, but the red shoes danced on. A face glowed in the moonlight. It was in a tree. It was a face she recognized. The red beard of the soldier danced in the breeze as he laughed. Dancing pumps? Pretty dancing pumps? Karen danced on. I mean, in obvious pain and terror, but what was that about? Karen danced until she came to the churchyard. There was no rest for her. She was hungry and thirsty now. She had been dancing for hours. She thought she saw an angel. An angel. But his white light wasn't pure and warm and welcoming. It was cold. Cold and hard. She was hoping to be taken to heaven. But the angel's gaze was adamantine. He was a gate. She wouldn't be following him. You wanted to dance? You will dance. Dance in your red shoes. Dance until you're pale and cold, until your skin has shriveled up and you're a skeleton. You will knock at the doors where proud and arrogant children live, so they will see you, and you will be a warning. Karen cried out for mercy, but the red shoes carried her onward. Onward, down, into the darkness. Over the following days, the shoes took her all over, and even back through town. Delirious with exhaustion, hunger, and pain, she danced past the open door. She remembered it, like one remembers a nightmare or twilight sleep. But she saw her mother, surrounded by flowers and weeping. Her mother had died alone. Karen knew without knowing that her mother's final thoughts of her, of Karen, that her daughter had left her, that she had been abandoned, cursed. Karen danced on. More days passed, and she found herself approaching the house of the queen's headsman. She had an idea, a gruesome idea. She didn't want him to strike off her head. She needed to remain, remain to repent. The headsman nodded. He understood. Karen didn't scream. The pain was nothing compared to what she had experienced over the past few weeks. When it was done, when she was bandaged, she told the headsman to let them go. He opened the door and the shoes danced on. Danced on with Karen's feet inside them. But Karen remained. It was over. Karen rose from her cot and found her crutches. The preacher's wife came in with some water. The, uh, the feet were back. Karen grimaced. 
as if the people of the city needed to be reminded of Karen's selfishness, of her vanity, her pride. Karen would live with that, always. She had been there a few months. She wandered in, bloody and delirious, after the visit with the headsman. They took her in, and even though ostensibly she had been hired to look after the preacher and his family at the parsonage, they had been taking care of her. She did keep the children company. She told them her story, told them about love, kindness, about how they should be grateful for what they had. The children, though, spoke of finery, beauty, the wonderful shiny things of the world. Karen would only shake her head. She would try to tell them, but knew that they would have to go on their own journeys. She hoped theirs wouldn't be as difficult as hers. She didn't go to church. She didn't feel herself deserving of forgiveness and felt like the people mostly forgot about her, tucked away in the back room. Except when the shoes themselves danced with her severed feet through the church. But that happened more than anyone would probably like. One day, while she was sitting in her room, it hit her. Everything. Her mother was dead. Both of them. One had been taken. She abandoned the other in her pain. She realized now that she had always been running, always looking for something to fill the void, to relieve the trauma. Escape would never do that. She felt alone, like she had no hope, like everything had been her fault. She felt a hand on her shoulder. She looked up. It was the angel, the angel she had seen in the churchyard, the day she was dancing. He wasn't holding a sword this time but a branch, green and full of roses. She broke down. The next week, Karen joined the rest of the town at church. She looked on the eyes, expecting judgment. She found only love. She sat down and placed her crutches next to her and felt a hand on her back. She turned to one of the women who was a friend of her late mother, and the woman smiled, saying that she, well, that they were all glad that Karen had come. Karen smiled back. It was by the grace of God. Then, Karen's heart exploded. And she died. The end. Yeah, I mean, it. her heart broke or burst. Some translations say different things. The story tells us that she was so overwhelmed with the beauty of the church, the peace she felt, and the grace of God that her heart broke and she died. Her soul was carried up to heaven on a sunbeam, and no one brought up the red shoes, just in case you're wondering. I'll be real. I started this episode with the moral in mind that you should never enjoy anything because it might lead to vanity, getting your feet cut off, and your heart exploding. The end. And there is a level of shocking brutality to these stories. Far be it for me to comment on a person's personal preferences or morals, but it does seem excessive that the punishment making you right with God after enjoying red shoes and dancing would be weeks of torture, having your feet cut off, and then having your heart burst. And it's not very English majory of me, but it is noteworthy that Hans Christian Andersen's sister was named Karen and that they had a strained relationship. And his father was a shoemaker who made a pair of red shoes once for a client who rejected them and he cut them up in front of the woman. 
to me though, and this is just my own personal rating, I don't think Karen was a bad person, and I don't think she deserved what she got. She was fleeing the pain of the poverty of her youth with the red shoes. She wanted to be well-regarded and to look nice after spending years as an object of pity. And I like to think that, as I mentioned before, when confronted with her second parent figure dying and leaving her alone, she chose escape rather than addressing that pain. That escape led her down a terrible path that could only be resolved by her forcibly removing the shoes from her life. In that way, the story seems to say that the things we hope to use to escape can be worse than the pain we're hoping to escape from. Next week, it's a scary, strange, and kind of inspiring story of a queen who would do whatever it took to keep her people from being attacked by the spirits of the forest, even if that meant marrying one of them. Quick announcement, there's a new episode of Fictional out tomorrow. And yes, we came back with Fictional again. If you didn't know, Fictional is another podcast we do that's like this, but with classic literature and short stories. It's a story from a Ukrainian-born writer about, of course, a sentient human nose that leaves a face and starts a whole life of its own. It's absurd and wonderful and kind of touching. So if that sounds interesting, you can find it by following the link in the show notes or by searching for Fictional wherever you get your podcasts. The creature this time is the Striga, from Albanian folklore. Pig bones over church doors. Not a big deal, right? I mean, people might be wondering about the gruesome new cross decorations, but hey, who am I to judge if people want to donate their craft time, and I guess leftovers, to the church? Who cares, right? Well, the pigs, probably. But also, the Striga, because those pig bones? That's a trap. She's a vampiric monster who hides in plain sight. She even goes to church. That's when, when people suspect that there's a striga in their midst, they wait until everyone is in church and then hang a cross of pig bones over the door. Everyone but the striga is able to pass underneath it and leave. I mean, it feels weird that the person who wants to stay in the church is the vampire witch, like that poor lady who's helping to get the potluck ready looks up and sees an angry mob. What then? Anyway, if she spits blood in your face, unprompted, that's a sign that things really aren't normal. It's also awesome because if you take some of that blood off your face and coat and stuff and place it on a silver coin and wrap up that coin in a cloth, it's a great way to ward off future encounters with the Striga. And yeah, the Striga is kind of every parent's nightmare. She travels around at night in the form of a fly, bee, or moth, stealing the life out of children one way to keep her out of your house? Apparently, garlic bread. Yeah, usually garlic is seen as a charm to keep monsters away, like something like iron. But this is the first I've read of using garlic bread. I don't know if you can use the cheesy type and just put those leftovers near your kid, but yeah, you should do that. Between the garlic bread and the pig bones and the fact that striga apparently comes from the Latin word for screech, describing what the witch does to let you know she's on her way, it's a wonder she's ever gotten anyone. Just like, put that extra loaf of garlic bread in the oven for dinner tonight and you'll probably be okay. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free. And the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. 
and we'll see you next time. <laughs>